We're going to continue our study of Joshua. Joshua 10 is where we are today. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. You'll find that on 185 in your Pew Bible. I'm going to begin jumping around. I've been going straight through, but once we get to the middle section, you'll understand why it's a lot of uh, lists of kings and battles and and then it's the inheritance and it's all the names of the people that got their inheritance divvied out. We're going to take those in big chunks and probably not read every word, but uh, I would encourage you to read every word of Joshua. I, I had to read it one time in worship service when I was on staff at First Presbyterian Church and I got there early because there's two services and I was the assistant and so I had to read, I think, Joshua 15, and it is just a list of Hebrew names and, and places. And so the pastor at the time said, uh, have you looked at the Bible reading this morning? You might want to look over that and read through it first before you get up there. And so I did, thankfully. But we'll, we'll, uh, we'll cover it all. Uh, we may not read every word, but we'll cover it all. But today we're looking at the first uh, 27 verses of chapter 10 here. As, uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. <clears throat> as soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adani Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aishalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. 
These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of, at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us. You may be seated. When the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez landed at Veracruz, Mexico in 1519, he was intent on conquest. And to assure the devotion of his men, Cortez set fire to his fleet of 11 ships. There was no going back, no means of retreat. Cortez's army had only one direction to move, and that was into the Mexican interior. Well, Cortez understood the price of commitment. I don't know that his cause was a worthy one. Uh, certainly frowned upon in our day, uh, this idea of conquest. But he knew the kind of commitment it took, and he paid the price. There was no going back. They were fully committed whether they wanted to be or not. Well, Cortez was certainly committed. Well, Jesus taught that anyone who would follow him should also count the cost. And that is what we want to think about today the cost of following Christ, but also the help we have to make the sacrifice required and the end of it all, the victory that is guaranteed for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, last week, when we looked at chapter 9, we were introduced to these Gibeonites that we're, we, we read about here as well in chapter 10. They were Canaanites, specifically they were Hivites. You'll see that in Chapter 9, verse 1, uh, where Hivites are mentioned, the Gibeonites were uh, a clan of the Hivites. And like the rest of the Canaanites, they were all under the curse and judgment of God for the abominations that they had committed, namely child sacrifice. Uh, they sacrificed their children to their false gods. Uh, maybe something appropriate to mention here on Sanctity of Life uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, they sacrificed their children to the gods of 
Molech and Baal. And we today sacrifice our children to the God of convenience. It's, it's as much an abomination as it was then. They also engaged in other deviant sexual behaviors and, and other activities that were abominations. So they were under the curse and judgment of God, and Israel was executing that judgment uh, for God. And as well, they were driving the people out so that they wouldn't negatively influence the people of God. God had promised that land to them in the, times, in the time of Abraham and repeated that promise throughout the generations. So the army of Israel is headed towards Gibeon. We read about last week. They've already conquered Jericho, Ai, and the next city, city to the west uh, is Gibeon. So these guys, uh, they hatched their plan to pretend like they're from a distant country uh, and they, they uh, want to trick the Israelites into making a covenant with them, saying, we're no threat to you, we're from way off, and, and if you make a covenant with us, everything will be fine, we'll be your servants. So in chapter 9 through 9 through 11, it tells us why uh, the Gibeonite representatives confess to the Israelites most of what they know. So they said to Joshua... From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. Now, that word name, of course, it means God's name, but when you see uh, them say it in this way, we have heard, uh, we, we came from this distant country because of the name of the Lord your God. Name means fame. They've heard about what Yahweh specifically has done. The word Yahweh is in the original. That's God's personal name that he told to Moses at the burning bush. Because of the fame, the reputation of Yahweh, we want to make a treaty with you. We know he means business. We know what he's done to the Egyptians and to uh, those other kings on the other side of the Jordan. We have heard a report of him and all that he did. Uh, to, in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites. So our elders told us, take provisions and go and meet them and say, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. So Joshua, as the leader and head of the people of God, makes a covenant with them. Well, just a couple of days later, they come to the cities of the Gibeonites and find that they were not from a distant country, but from just down the road. And so Joshua asks them in verse 24 of chapter 9, Why did you lie to us? They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Well, here we have a group of people who know that they are under the wrath and curse of God and that judgment upon them is imminent. They also know that the only way that they can be saved is to be on the Lord's good side, not on his bad side. And so the only way for them to get on the right side of God is through a covenant relationship given to them through the head of his people and that's exactly what happened. They became servants of God and his house. Now the same is true for us. This is actually a, a wonderful picture of salvation. Everyone is a sinner. 
Every, no one is accepted from that. Everyone is a sinner, and every sinner is under the wrath and curse of God and faces the judgment of God. And the only way of salvation is by entering into a covenant relationship with the New Testament Joshua, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is just the Greek form of Joshua. It's the same name. It means Yahweh saves. So to get on the Lord's good side, we have to get into a covenant relationship through Jesus Christ. And that makes you a member of God's people and a servant of God, just like these Gibeonites became. So this episode here with the Gibeonites gives us this wonderful picture of salvation. Now the Gibeonites have a future when they did not have a future. They were on the chopping block, literally, next in line. They have hope now where they didn't have any hope before. And as I showed you last week, they became a fixture in the life of Israel. They were assimilated into the people of God. And in the long run, their lives were vastly improved. Well, they didn't even have a long run until they made this covenant with Joshua as they faced impending judgment and destruction. So their lives in the long run, much better. They're there close to the tabernacle serving God by chopping wood and getting water. Uh, they're not going to be destroyed. They're learning about God and his ways. They're under the protection of Israel, as we see here in the, in the coming text. So their lives, yes, much better off in the long run, but there was a cost. There was a cost. And the same is true for us today. If you get into a relationship with Jesus, if you pledge your allegiance to him, if you get connected to the people of God, there's a cost. And it's the same cost that the Gibeonites pay. The Gibeonites give us a, a wonderful picture of the cost of discipleship. Look at what happened to the Gibeonites. Verses 1 through 5 tells us that five kings in the neighboring cities, they team together and they don't attack Israel, they attack the Gibeonites. Because the Gibeonites have made a treaty and, a, and made a covenant with Israel. See, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, the king of Jerusalem says. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. They're just mad. They're angry at the Gibeonites. And so they go up to make war against Gibeon. Now these folks lived all around Gibeon. And they had existed there, I'm sure, for centuries in peace with one another. In fact, they commend Gibeon. Gibeon was a great city, bigger than Ai, and all of its men were warriors. So there's a lot of respect there. So we know that they didn't really hate one another before, but now that they have aligned themselves with Yahweh and Yahweh's people, they hate the Gibeonites. They want to destroy the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were no longer friends with their neighbors. Their once close associates are now trying to destroy them. They're being persecuted for joining the people of God. And the same is true in our day. Jesus told us that if we come and follow him, there's going to be a price. We're going to lose friends. The world won't love us anymore. Those people that once accepted us no longer accept us. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. There's a, there's a cost to uniting with Christ. Bakari was born and grew up in a Muslim tribe near the Indian Ocean in southern Kenya. On a Wednesday night, uh, Bakari was per persuaded to attend a local Christian church. He was only going because he had a personal illness and he was desperate. But that evening, at 42 years old, he found the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And he proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord, and it cost him everything. His wife immediately divorced him, his family disowned him, and he lost his job. But he had found Jesus, and he never looked back. And that story is true of many throughout the world who live in countries where the majority of people are hostile to Christianity. There's a cost. The Gibeonites faced the cost, and uh, Bakari here faced the cost, and many others faced the cost. We all do. And Jesus told us in Luke 14, three statements about those who cannot be his disciples, referring to the cost. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Now that's a hyperbole. Jesus says other places that you're supposed to honor your mother and father. So he's not saying you're literally supposed to hate your parents, but your love and devotion to Christ is to be greater than that to your parents even, to the closest relations you have. It's a provocative statement. Think about the disciples. Uh, I think of, uh, of John James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it tells us in Matthew 4 that when Jesus said to, to follow me, he came to them, they were with their father fishing. It says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They left their father. And we never hear any more about their father. We hear about the mother, but we don't hear about his father but Jesus was more important to them than their own father or the family business that they had. Their father is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, as I said. Um, but we do see their mother speaking to Jesus on their behalf, albeit wrong-headed uh, request. So they do not literally hate their parents. They just love Jesus so much that they were willing to devote their lives to following him. And that's part of the cost. The second statement that Jesus makes there in Luke 14, Who, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And that just follows on with the first statement. Uh, a true disciple or follower of Christ uh, follows. A follower follows. And if Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life for others, we are to follow suit. Cross-bearing refers to self-sacrifice, even to the point of giving one's life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Cost of Discipleship said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to self, die to the world. And then the third thing that he says here in Luke, uh, Luke 14, 
Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renounce, say goodbye to, take leave of, part with. When you come to Christ to follow him, you put everything on the table. Your whole life, it's all Christ's. Your life is no longer your own. Your possessions are no longer your own. You belong to him. It's like the man uh, in the parable of the, the pearl. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, he had the best pearl around, but he didn't have anything else. All he had was that pearl, because he sold everything else for that pearl. And that's what Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like. You, you are devoted to Christ above everything else. That's the cost. That's the cost of following Jesus. It costs you everything. It costs you the world. It costs you old friends and acquaintances. There's a cost. Persecution from the world. Rejection. But the good news is, yes, there's a cost, but there's help. There's help. And we see that in, from two places. In this passage, we see the Gibeonites crying out to help from who? The people of God, the people with whom they've made the treaty. Uh, and the same is true for Christians. We're not on our own. Uh, yes, the world may hate us now, but we have the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has been given gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. We need one another. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. You know, the Lone Ranger was... You know, he's, he really wasn't alone because he had, you know, Tonto there with him who actually did more stuff, you know, did all the good stuff. So nobody's really alone in their quest to do good or whatever. In the church, we need one another. And, you know, a lot of times uh, what has happened over the past year or two is that a lot of people, once we went through quarantine, they didn't get back involved in church. And they think, well, I can watch it on TV and do it on my own and, you know, just have my own relationship with the Lord without reference to anybody else. That is wrong-headed. You need the body of Christ. You need the gifts that the other members of the body of Christ have. You're needed. Uh, you need others. And together we need to encourage one another in our faith and fight the battles with one another, for one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How, how much we need the people of God the people in Gibeon were at a desperate point. They had all the, their neighbors coming against them in war, and Joshua and the people of God come to their rescue, come to their aid, come alongside and fight for them. And it's a beautiful picture of the church coming alongside. It does my heart wonderfully uh, good to see our military folk who come to church. You know, you're here for a brief amount of time, but you jump in, and uh, you come to church, and, and I just love that uh, about you all, that uh, you're, you're not uh, just searching around. You're, you mean business. You're getting connected as much as you can in the body of Christ for the brief time that you're here. And we want to be of service to you, to encourage you in your faith over the time that you're here. We see that as a vital part of our ministry here at the, at the, at the front door of Keesler. So the people of God are important in, in giving us help in the, in, as we pay the cost of facing the, the hatred and persecution of the world. But even more than that, we have God on our side. And you see that, of course, in this battle. Look at verse 10 
uh, before, you know, when, when Joshua in, uh, arrives on the scene, it says the Lord, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Verse 11, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And that's what God did that. Verse 14, there's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. The Lord is for his people and he fights for his people. When they bring the, the chiefs, uh, the men of war uh, out to these five kings that they have captured. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And we read it in our assurance of part today. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, there's going to be battles. There's, you're in a war. There's going to be trials and persecution and difficulties, and there's going to be illness. You know, this is not prosperity gospel stuff. This is real life, the way it is. Look at the disciples. Their lives weren't easier because they followed Jesus. They became very difficult. They were all martyred for following the Lord. How anyone can say you can have your best life now is beyond me. Best life is to come when the Lord returns and gives us the final victory. But until then, we've, we fight, and the Lord fights for us because he's on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? He was willing to sacrifice his own son. Will he not also give us everything else that we need? He certainly will. Now, finally, the victory. There is a victory here. And uh, the, they bring out these five kings, as it says there, and they symbolically placed their foot on the necks of the kings. It was a ritual of victory. Defeated enemies are often said to be under the feet of the victor. You know, Christ will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. It's one of the examples. We may have battles to fight in this life, but what makes the cost worth it is the ultimate victory that we have. And we, we were already victorious in one sense. The, the war has been won. There's battles still going on, but the war has been won by Jesus. Romans 16:20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In Revelation, we have a picture of this. Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven open, John says, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And he's attended by the armies of heaven, but it says there that I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And it just simply says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest, all these kings, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a picture of the ultimate victory of good over evil, of, of Christ over Satan, and, and all the workers of evil. That's the ultimate victory that we will have and be celebrating for eternity. But if not, if, if you're not in that covenant relationship with Christ, then you're, you're under the judgment with those kings. As Ben read Psalm 2 at the beginning, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his, his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want God and his representative over us. We want to do what we want to do. We want to go our own way and reject God. Well, that does not end well for anyone who does that. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And he found, in the, the last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You'll only have that blessing of the final victory if you are taking refuge in in him. If you are in that relationship with him by faith, you're turning from your own way, your own will, your sin. You're coming to him as your prophet, priest, and king to tell you which way to go, to wash and cleanse and renew you, and to be your Lord and your king. Well, was it worth it to the Gibeonites? I would say absolutely. You know, they had a big scare. They, they were hated by their neighbors. But their life was, and their life was more complicated because of their connecting with God and his people. But ultimately, as we saw last week, they joined in with the people of God. And Gibeonites will be in heaven with us. We'll be able to hear their story. Won't that be wonderful? And I hope you're there. If you're not sure where you are with the Lord, then I encourage you to call upon his name. Cry out to him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word and just for the picture this is of the Christian life and the cost and your protection. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us uh, these promises, your word that reassures us and encourages us as we fight our daily battles, uh, as we falter and stumble. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you're fighting for us, even though we're far from perfect and we make make many mistakes and sometimes outright sin, yet, Lord, you, you are always there for us. We can always run to you. And I pray that we would all do that this morning and rest in, in your protection. You are the good shepherd, and we rejoice in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.